0: while you're turning there, they're handing out sermon notes that you can raise your hand. The fellows will hand you one of the notes. They are also in the bulletin. But you can follow along and I would encourage you to get some notes so you can follow along because there's a lot of material that we're trying to share this morning as we go through the study. If you're visiting with us, we're starting a study here that we're doing this summer that is on the family, especially focusing on parenting. Now immediately I fear this, that those of you who are young in your life who haven't children, those of you who have already raised your children and you thank God for the that opportunity, that you are just going to say, okay, this is not for me. I'm going to clear out. What we're talking about are principles that apply to everybody at every point in their life. But in particular, I'm going to make some application to parenting and grandparenting. But those of you that say, well, we don't even have a family yet, listen closely to some of these principles. They apply to your areas of service where God has called you. So I'm going to invite you to join me with a word of prayer, and then we're going to get underway as we study in Matthew a parenting passage. Father, I thank you for your grace. Thank you for the attentiveness and the worship done so far in this service by this group. And I pray that you would help as we worship now with the area of listening to you, that you would be pleased by our attentiveness, by our willingness to be uh, uh, letting your word apply to our lives and help us to make changes as changes are needed in all of our lives. Lord, you know my nervousness, you know my apprehensions, you know my nervousness about this message, I pray that you would calm me down a little bit so that I don't talk even faster. In Jesus' name, amen. And I mean it, okay? Because you would never keep up with me if that's the case. There's a a book, there's movies made about the Band of Brothers. You've seen them, some of you, you've read some of the books. It's about the paratroopers that went behind the enemy lines there at D-Day going into Normandy and some of their experiences and they've made films about some of the real life experiences of these real heroes who sacrificed and who were fighting for a cause of freedom and stopping the uh, violence and the evil that was going on at that time in World War II. Well there's one scene that takes place, I understand that, in one of the films. It's of two of the characters in the, uh, in the uh, film version that they are dropped behind enemy lines and like what happened to many of the paratroopers, they get separated from their outfit. And so like a lot of the peoples, they didn't land in the right spots. Well there's two of them that are having conversation. A Lieutenant Winters and a private, I forget his name all of a sudden, uh, private hall. And so private hall is really panicked at this moment. The whole portrayal is that he's nervous, he's unsure of what's going on, where he's at. But Lieutenant Winters is cool, calm, collected. Oh, there's some nervousness, but he had been studying the maps. He has some idea of where they're at. Not certain, but he's got an idea of the big picture. And so here's the conversation that takes place. This private hall is very nervous says, any idea where we're at? And Lieutenant Winters, some idea. I need you to help locate some of the buildings and some of the landmarks. Keep your eyes open. And then private hall says, I wonder if others are as lost as we are. This next statement is classic. Lieutenant Winters responds and says, we're not lost, we're in Normandy. Okay. He has the big picture. It gives him confidence because even though right here at this moment we're uncertain, I've got the bigger picture. I think that is true in a lot of areas of our life. In a lot of our areas we feel overwhelmed, we feel bewildered. Sometimes it's because of a medical issue. Sometimes it's because of a trial we're going through. Sometimes it's our finances. Sometimes it's problems with relatives, in-laws, outlaws. Sometimes it happens for parents. There are moments that parents will feel bewildered and overwhelmed. Some of you might have had this this morning. You got out of bed and it wasn't a thrill thinking about worship because you're trying to get all those little munchkins ready and you know that this is the day they move slower than any other day of the week. And so there's sometimes those bewildering, those challenging moments. And to many people, especially Christian people, with all of what we put in the seriousness of raising kids, sometimes we get really exhausted and frustrated. There's an author that I've been using some of his material, and I would recommend the book highly to you. The author is Paul David Tripp. He's put out several different books on parenting. This book, he says, is his last, but he said that the last time he wrote one. And uh, it's a book, and it's just simply called Parenting. And uh, he does an outstanding job in presenting materials for Food for Thought. One of the sections I want to read for you and not bore you. I want to read several this morning, but I want to just read this one part. As I fly around the world to lead parenting conferences, I meet exhausted and discouraged parents all the time. In fact, many of them have confessed to me that they dreaded coming to another parenting conference because they thought they'd be told again all the things they're not doing and leave the weekend feeling defeated and guilty. I've had mom after mom confess to me that they were at their end of their rope. I've had dads ask me what to do about their anger. I've had parent after parent say that they know that they're doing and what they're saying, that they shouldn't be doing and saying those things, but they don't know how to stop. Lydia said this, I start out the day telling myself that I'll do better, but by the end of the day, I'm screaming at him again. Jason said, I just hear my teenage son begin with his excuses and I explode. Marge said, I have read all the good parenting books, but none of them have helped me. Sue said, how could it be that a three-year-old boy could have such power to make me so crazy? Ginny commented, I go to bed exhausted. I wake up exhausted. I don't feel the joy of parenting. Frank said, we got away last weekend because both of us were at the end of our ropes with our four boys and either we go away or we send them away. Sam, we were so excited about having children. That excitement is long gone. Sharon said, I feel all the time I just don't have what it takes to do all the things you're supposed to do as a parent. Judy commented, I feel all the time that I just need some more rest but there's no opportunity for rest as a parent of a toddler. Overburdened, overwhelmed, exhausted and discouraged. I think this is the state of many more Christian parents than what we think. And in our exhaustion and discouragement we are all too susceptible to doing and saying things that are not only unhelpful to our children but they add to the burden of inadequacy and guilt that we are already carrying. Occasionally we reflect on what we've been doing and we're saddened that we've become what we determined we would not become and we've done what we told ourselves we would never do. You ever been there? Can you relate to it? Let me make some comments along this line. If we spend our time focusing and fixating on what we're doing wrong and what we're not accomplishing and not meditating on the Lord, we are going to end up at the bottom. If we don't look to the Lord to help us in this most difficult, challenging ministry, we'll say it this way. When we are God forgetters, we tend to load unbearable burdens upon our own shoulders. That's in every area of our life. That's for some of you deciding what school to go to, what career to make. When you forget God, it gets to be a tough decision. When you say, okay, I'm going to handle all my financial problems and difficulties all by myself and you forget God, boy, it becomes overwhelming. If you say, I'm going to deal with all of our marriage challenges just on my own wisdom and strength, you're going to have a tough, tough road. It applies to every area of our life. But especially when we talk about parenting, we wanted you to realize this. You need to get the big picture. You need to get the, over, the overwhelming, the, the huge picture and say, okay, I may feel like I'm not sure exactly where I'm at but I know I'm in Normandy. And just to be able to calm things down and to trust the Lord a little bit better. That starts by asking yourself this most important question. When it comes to your children, what is their greatest need? What is their greatest need? Now I've checked out some different books and some different ideas and articles and there's a wide variety of what is a child's greatest need. This parenting magazine suggests these different items. That they need to have a joy. That the child needs to have the ability to overcome failures. They need to be able to focus. Good luck with that one. Okay, They need to be able to be honest, to admit their own inabilities or to try over and over again or to be kind one towards another. Or maybe we can go to different counselors or we can listen to different preachers and they will give all different uh, lists of all the things that are really, really good that we need to be training our children in. What's the most important? What is the most critical area? All of these are really important. What is the most important? How do, we, how do we do everything if we're shotgunning or do we just narrowly target and say this is the most important? Can I suggest something that you need to be careful about? I've been meditating on this a lot and through observation and just through personal experience and uh, maybe I'm, maybe I'm just blowing smoke. Maybe this is really stupid. I think it has real value to think this through. If you and I as parents focus only on their behavior, we want to make sure that our children are polite. We want to make sure that they are proper and we only point at that. We might have polite kids, but they could still be rebellious. They could be a child that does well only in my presence. I want to do something more than that. Now, behavior is important. Don't get me wrong. But if that is my goal as a parent, that I am going to have well-behaved child. And by the way, we all have that goal. I want to have, but this is the most important. They've got to be well-behaved. They might say, no, thank you. I'm not doing it. They've said it politely, but they're still rebelling against you. Let me give you another observation. There are some parents who say, well, I want to make sure that I cloister my kids. I want to make sure that they're in an environment that is safe. We all want that. That is a good thing, but if this is it, if it is only about isolating our children from every other child who might teach them something bad like picking their nose... You didn't think I would say that, I know, but (laughs) or slapping somebody else. So I'm going to isolate my child. Fine. You've isolated, and we need we need to be careful who they're around. But we might isolate kids that they don't know how to deal with other kids and other people. When they get to be adults, they don't know how to handle conflicts. They don't know how to stand up in pressure. How to stand for Christ is not done in a nursery only. You know, the nursery of the, the plants. It has to be done in the weathering the storms. So if we're gonna be a testimony, we gotta teach our kids that. How do you deal with unsaved people? You know, if they're to take the gospel of folk, if they're to take the gospel to the world, they need to know how to interact with folk. Okay. So I need to protect them. But if this is my whole goal, I'm gonna provide an environment where they're isolated. Oof. Or let's here's some parents. I'm gonna focus on building my child's self-esteem. Um let me just suggest right at the outset, kids don't typically need to learn to love themselves anymore. Human nature, we do that too much already. But be that as it may, some will say, I want to build self-esteem. You might have a confident child who is very confident and very self-absorbed when they become an adult, if that's your only goal. If your only goal is, I'm going to set rules and boundaries. Kids need rules and boundaries. And by the way, I'm for all of these things to a degree. But if it's all about setting rules and boundaries, I may have raised four legalists that come to the point that everybody's got to keep these rules and if you don't keep the same rules I keep, you're not good. That's exactly what Paul writes in the New Testament against is people who are all of a sudden becoming proud and judgmental of others because of their rules and regulations. And I'm all for standards, but that can't be the main criteria. What is the main concern? What is the greatest need When I had my four in my home, what is their greatest need? What are, of our eight grandkids, what is their greatest need? They have different personalities. My kids, I still am amazed to this day how four people could come from the same genetic pool and be so different. But they all have the same need. The the grandkids, they all have the same. In fact, in a crowd like this, there are so many different personalities. There are so many quirks. And there are so many different traits and virtues, but there still comes back to the same need, the same starting point for everyone. And if we were to get that big picture, there's a passage that is never used in parenting, but in application it applies. It's a missionary passage, it's out of Matthew chapter 28. In Matthew 28, the last few verses, there is a passage here that gives us hope and help and a challenge as parents to meet our kids' greatest need. Let me set the scene. In the last few verses of Matthew 28, Jesus has already died. He is resurrected. He is now Done his ministry in Matthew 28, and he is wrapping it up. He's with his disciples, he's ready to leave. And what's happening is there are people in the community who want to suppress the fact he rose again from the dead. In fact, if you read the story, it's really interesting how Matthew lays this out. Matthew starts in laying it out in verse 11. Now, when they were going, behold, some of the watch, those who watched the tomb, came into the city and showed the chief priests all the things that were done. And when the chief priests were assembled, the elders, and had taken counsel, they gave the large, a large sum of money to the soldiers. And they said to the soldiers, "His disi- now you got to tell this. This is, your, this is what you tell people. His disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. And if you tell that lie, if the governor, your boss, hears about what happens, we will persuade him to secure you. So the soldiers took the money. They told what they were taught and it became a commonly reported even to the Jews to this day that Jesus' body was stolen. The fact is this. Some wanted to suppress this news. Some approved of a lie of an exaggeration, of a distortion and they said I will use my authority, the rulers, we will use our authority to protect you to promote a lie. Well the author is going on he says on the other side there is Jesus. Jesus is saying to his disciples, I want you to spread the truth. I want you to go and tell everybody. Look what happens. Then the 11 disciples went into the Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped. But some were doubtful. And Jesus said, I have authority. I have power. All power is given unto me in heaven. What you need to do is go tell the truth. Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I will use my power to protect you when you tell the truth. Just the opposite of what the Jews were saying to the soldiers when they were promoting a lie. And Jesus is saying, tell it everywhere. What this passage does is it implies every person's greatest need. It tells us we're at the bat. It shows us what the greatest need of people is this. People need to hear about what Christ has done. That is people's greatest need. That is for everyone throughout the world. That even applies to those within your world, within your home. They need to hear what Christ has done. Your kids need to hear about Jesus Christ. Their greatest need. Their greatest need is to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I know for the majority of you, this is old news, I know for the majority of you this is becoming like water off a duck's back because you know it, you've heard it and it's like, well what are you going to say? Give me something new preacher. This is so critical. This is so essential that some of you are missing it because it is so obvious. Because there's, there's a whole realm of material within this text about this idea. I know that some people don't like what I'm going to say in the rest of this message. There are some who are going to respond, like the woman responded who came to our reenactment. She came to our reenactment this year or last year and she was very upset afterwards. The reenactment that we did at Christmas time where we portray the birth and we go through the different scenes and then our last scene is talking about the life and ministry and the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. She came out of the reenactment and she was a human. She was upset. She says, I will never believe that you could ruin Christmas this way. You talked about such a beautiful story of Jesus coming, and then you talked about such negative things of him dying. Oh, you know, you and I, our response would be, he came to die. He came to seek and to save that which was, yeah, that was the real story. The story isn't about a, a cutesy little baby in the manger who comes miraculously and the story stops there, that's not the real story of Christmas. The real story of Christmas is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ to come in that form and to live a holy life and then to suffer and die for our sins and give us the gift of eternal life. She didn't like it. Neither did a preacher here in town where one day with some of you, we had a calling program, some of you went out distributing literature. When I got back from doing my distribution, I got a phone call. And there was a preacher from over in this area of town whose response was, hey, are you the church that just sent out people to distribute literature? And I said, It could be. I would think so. We had people, in where you live? Told me about where he lived. And he said, well, I'm a preacher. And I don't need this. And he used a vulgarity. And I said, well, sir, we don't consider this material to be what you just said. It's from the Bible. I know where it comes from, and I think it is. So I don't think he would like what I'm going to say. I don't think that some of the folk who have sometimes had conversations with me that said, Pastor, I I think we need to stop teaching about kids being sinners. We shouldn't be teaching that. That's too negative. Okay, You're not going to like what I'm going to say. Because your child's greatest need is to realize they need a Savior. They need a Savior. You see, the child's problem is the same problem that you and I have. The problem is, is unfolded in multiple passages. Can I just reflect with you off one passage? If you want to turn there, you're welcome to turn. I'm just going to tell you a story. There's a parable that's given in three acts. Act, act number one, scene number one, is of a shepherd who has all these sheep and one of them wanders away. And the shepherd goes out and he seeks for the sheep. He leaves the 99. He goes out and brings that one and brings him back. And when he brings the sheep back, what does the shepherd do? He rejoices. Okay? Then it is another scene, scene two, act two. There's a woman who has dowry, and she usually would put that around her coins on her the coins around her head or part of her her go-to town, you know, outfit, her fancy outfit. Well, one of the coins is gone. And so that's part of her livelihood that's gonna secure her if something happens to her spouse or did happen to her spouse, and she's missing a coin. And the coins here somewhere and so she's looking all around is the sense. She's looking everywhere for that coin, probably checking in the sofa cushions because that's where they always are, you know, or underneath the car seat. You know, she's looking for the coin. And when she finally finds it, what does she do? She rejoices. Okay? Then there's a third act. The third act brings it into human realm. There's a dad with two boys. The one boy wants to be on his own. The boy says, you know, I've had enough living at home. I want to, you know, stretch my wings. And so he demands his inheritance. He leaves home and he starts to party hardy for a period of time. He's got lots of friends until the money runs out then his friends scatter and he's finding himself in total despair total poverty now nobody's bailing him out and he ends up this Jewish boy ends up in a pig farmer's field in fact he's eating the slop from the pigs and he says and the passage is, is kind of clever he came to himself in other words duh okay why am I so dumb I am sitting here eating pig slop. My dad back home, his servants eat better, sleep better, are cleaner, and better smelling than I am. I'm going to go back home, or he should have been. I'm going to go back home, and he's got it all planned. When I see dad, and he does what you do, and I do, we rehearse those conversations over and over, and we win every one of them that we rehearse. He's going, he's rehearsing the whole thing, and he gets home, and his dad sees him coming down the road, and dad runs to meet him. The boy says, Father, forgive me, I've sinned, and dad wraps him up, and the boy doesn't get the words out of his mouth. And the dad says, he's home, da-da-da-da, and what does the dad throw? A party, not a fit, but a party. There's rejoicing. Now, what you get out of these stories is something that Jesus was trying to relate. He was trying to describe lostness. He was describing to describe, trying to describe condition of people. And in this, he's giving an idea that there's a valuable item. In each one of them, a valuable item is lost. Something that is precious. It's no longer in the owner's possession. Whether it be care and, and providing for as a flock, whether it be the coin in their hand, whether it be the father's son who is no longer in his household under his care and protection, The things are lost. And just like the sheep and son in that lostness, it didn't just happen by happenstance, they chose to wander away. And in their, in their lost condition, they get into woo. They get away from everything that is good, everything that's providing, everything that's protecting, everything that is parenting them, and they get into a dangerous situation. And in the dangerous situation, they are so befuddled, they are so lost, they can't get their way back they, they, they're, they're like the wandering sheep. He doesn't know where to go. The son in particular makes some terrible, terrible choices. It all started with wanting to do his own thing. He believed in this point that, that he could find real happiness in things, in, in what the, what's out there, in those friends, and those things that were God had said were somewhat innately harmful. And so this boy, can we, can we rephrase it this way? He believes two big lies. Two big lies that every one of us to some degree have swallowed. The two lies go this way. The lie that I'm autonomous. That's a a lie that says I am completely, totally my own boss. I can do whatever I want. No one has the right to tell me what to do. We all think that at some times. That's part of our sin nature. And it goes right along with I'm self-sufficient. That lie says this. I don't need anybody. I am wise enough. I am good enough. I can take care of everything by myself. People do this all the time. I am, I am okay in and of myself. I don't need God to get me to heaven. I want to be there, but I can do this. I don't need anybody else to tell me how to get to heaven. I'm going to do it my way. And they, they can sing that tune with Sinatra for all eternity, but it's not going to work. And the problem is we all have this innate in us and we pass it on to our kids and it shows in so many different ways. Let me see how Mr. Tripp gives you a little bit of insight from somebody who can say it much better than I can. He goes this way. Parents who fight with a toddler about what to eat are not really fighting about what to eat. Any of you been there? Any of you been there trying to get them to eat food that they don't want to eat? Okay, it's just you and me apparently. Okay. (laughs) It's not that he has a different perspective on diet than you do. Come on! That little child knows nothing about food. That fight is all about autonomy. It's about the little boy little girl's resistance to rules. It's about his belief that his little mouth belongs to him and no one will tell him what to put in it. My daughter decided she didn't want peas in her mouth. She had no intention of inserting green orbs into her oral cavity, although she had never tasted a pea in her life. So she would hold her jaw closed with the force of a pneumatic vice and would not open it. She was not defending herself against peas. She didn't even know what they were. She was defending her autonomy. She didn't know that no human being is designed to live independent. The battle over what to wear is usually not a fight for fashion, but about autonomy. The fight about whether your teenage son can go to this party or that is not is, is usually first about his deep commitment, uh, is not about his deep commitment to the celebrations of his community with his peers. That fight is about his continued resistance to being told what he can do or what he can't do. We all, including our children, resist being ruled. We all, including our children, want to, uh, want to own our own way. We all, including our children, set our minds on what we think will make us happy and get angry at anyone who stands in our way. It's stunning to see the body of a child who is not yet able to talk stiffen in anger, not only because he or she is not getting her way, but because she already believes she has a right to have her own way. It is shocking to see the amount of anger that comes out of a teenager when his mom says no to his weekend plans. He hates the authority not because he hates his parents but because he believes he is the only authority he needs the second lie this idea of self-sufficiency this lie tells your child that he has everything he needs inside himself to be what he needs to be and to do what he wants to do or and wants to be he doesn't need your help rescue instruction wisdom or correction it doesn't take long before you have to deal with the delusion of self-sufficiency in the heart of your child a toddler has discovered that his, shoelace, his shoes have laces that need to be tied. So he sits down, begins to fumble with the laces. He has no idea to tie the bow. He could fumble with those laces for all eternity and never end up with a bow. But when you reach down to help him, he pushes your hand away. That slap is not about lace ownership. It's about self-sufficiency. He desperately wants to believe that he can do quite well without your assistance or instruction. The teenage daughter who is arguing with you as you seek to impart to her some needed wisdom is arguing because she believes in her self sufficiency. And because she does, she thinks she already has all the wisdom she needs to operate. No one is autonomous. No one is self-sufficient. Everyone needs parenting care. To believe anything else is to be dangerously deluded and headed for trouble. Parents, the scary thing is that our kids buy into both those lies. You can see it in their actions. You can see it in their reactions. You can see it in their responses. All because we did the same thing. We passed it on. So parents, every day you have to deal with these lies operating in the hearts of your children. It's important to see beyond the issue of the moment Don't settle for winning the battle over the peas. That's not what you're dealing with. But rather, every time, fight for the heart behind the rejection. It's a whole different story. It's a whole different game. It's an idea that comes to basically saying this, that what we are as lost people, we reject authority. We want to do our own thing. And if we're not careful, we're going down the downward spiral like that young man did in that story. And as a result, the, the issues become even more serious. They can't get their way back. Unable to restore a place to the privilege. This is what we call by lostness. But there's another part of the story. The other part of the story is all about the owner and the father. And I think this is the issue. The issue in, this, in those three acts is that the owner, the shepherd, the woman the, the father at home, they love the item that's lost they desire to get it get it come back, they seek after it. they do all they can and when it comes back they are delighted, by the way that's the issue the jews were saying at this point at this moment they were saying god doesn't care about sinners god gets rid of anybody who is a sinner anybody who goes astray and they had in their own writings saying god delights in the punishment of sinners and jesus is saying that's not true god delights in repentance God wants to restore individuals. God is looking like that father down the roadway for the son to come back. And when he sees that son, he gets up and he runs and he meets that son. He wants to restore people. He wants to forgive people. He wants to help individuals to overcome that independent spirit, that self-sufficiency. God wants to forgive those who have become lost. And so what you have in this text is an implication that Jesus is saying this is the biggest need of your kids. This is the biggest need of your co-workers. This is the biggest need of anybody. It is they need Jesus Christ because they're lost. So we go a step further. This text tells us clearly this is what every parent's greatest task is. It's threefold in the verse. Threefold task. Your job is to help your child put their faith in Jesus Christ. To realize that what they need to do is they need to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. They need to believe in him to the point that they have put their faith in Jesus Christ that they can then publicly declare that. They need to be born again. Your child needs to accept Christ. Your child, as beautiful and as sweet as they are and as cuddly as they are, they are sinners by nature. They need a savior. They need Jesus Christ to forgive them of their sins. In fact, here's what you have. When your child disobeys, when your child disrespects you, it's much more than just bad behavior that needs to be stopped and say, you need to do politeness, you need to do this, you need to do that. It is an issue of the heart. It is an issue that their bad behavior comes out of a bad condition. Don't react to the bad behavior. Deal with the bad heart. Don't blow up. Don't lose your cold. Don't get your your cool. Don't get so frustrated because they aren't behaving Understand, it's because they're acting out in their sin nature. The response shouldn't be frustration and storming away and say, fine, have your own way. You're not dealing with the heart. You're just dealing with your own frustrations, and you're showing your sinful nature. you got to deal with the heart. you got to be cool, calm in your discipline. you got to deal with the heart. You aren't just dealing with behavior. you got to deal with getting them to repent you got to get them to the point that even when you discipline that they are responding right, that they aren't mad at you because you discipline them and so now they throw a fit, they throw a tantrum and you say, well I I did the discipline, what more can I do? You've got a heart issue. The heart issue is continuing. They're having a tantrum. There's a heart problem. Deal with it. It is so critical we go beyond just the idea of let's set up the rules, let's set up the regulations, bad behavior, oh by by the way if you're going to have a tantrum, I already disciplined you, I'm just going to leave you in the room and I'm going to go out here and I'm just going to pretend you don't exist. they got a heart problem deal with the heart problem, continue to deal with the issue so that they realize the condition of the heart. Again, I'm going to quote this source, not because he's the only authority, but he says it so well for me anyway, that makes it clear as I look back over my life and what I should have done and done different, sheep are prone to wander. It is in the nature of sheep to be easily distracted, quickly seduced by the lush green just beyond the borders of the fold. It is the nature of the sheep to blindly follow another wandering sheep. So it is with our kids. Because of the sin that lives within us, children are prone to wander out of the protective, instructive, corrective discipline of their parents. They tend to be influenced by other children who are no more capable of guiding them than they are. Most of the wrong behavior in your child is not intentionally or self-consciously rebellious. Sometimes it is. But most often their disobedience is the fruit of their lost condition. Your son or daughter doesn't get up in the morning and say to themselves, 8.30 this morning, I'm going to have an argument with mom or 7.30 tonight, I'm going to find a way to disobey her and get her to be really frustrated. But when you interpret their disobedience this way, when you tend to take their disobedience as something personal, you start accusing them of things that were not in their heart. It's important for you to emphasize this point. Your children will wander and they'll do it not because they want to war with you, but because they're lost And it makes all the difference. Instead of anger, you have compassion for the child who is acting out in lostness. It's a huge approach. It's the big picture. And it's a picture that challenges me that says, I can't change the heart issue with just more rules and regulations. I might restrict some of, the, some of the outworking, but they need a Savior. They need to get right with God. They need Jesus Christ. They need to understand that their disobedience, their disrespect is offensive to God. And this starts very early in discipline and in training. That you're telling them that not only do they need to apologize and ask forgiveness of me, they need to ask forgiveness of God. Because what they did was sin against God. To just get them to understand this. They need forgiveness. They need to come to a point where repentance is critical. That they ju- we just don't leave it with, I've corrected, I've disciplined. There has got to be an asking for forgiveness. My kids did this. Your kids probably never did. When I would say to my kids when they would disobey, let's go to the back room. Back room was our spot. Our sweet moments. We're in the back room. And my kids will go, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I love you, I love you, I love you, all the way. I love them. I know they're sorry, but they need to repent. And repentance isn't just saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It is asking, Will you forgive me? It is taking responsibility by saying, I have done you wrong. Will you forgive me? A lot of people say they're sorry without repentance. Your children need to learn by by rote repetition and ongoing times. They need a Savior. They've done wrong and it's only going to happen as you start training in those preschool years and bringing them to a point where they realize that they need to ask for forgiveness and when they ask for forgiveness it is forgiven. And you display that God stuff to them. You not only need them to bring them come to faith in Christ. You need to. You read this text. It is saying, make disciples of, of, your, of the people. Go therefore, teach all nations, that is make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So I need to bring them to faith but I need to also bring them to a spot where they proclaim their faith. Parenting isn't done when my kids get saved, they'll never have bad behavior. <laughs> Don't you wish. Parenting is training them as a disciple. Part of discipleship is training your kids to say, I need to stand for Christ. I need to make a public proclamation of my faith. Now I understand there are some of you who may say that baptism isn't important. It sure was to Jesus. He put it in this text. He said this is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to go out, make disciples. Part of making disciples is getting people to follow in baptism. I highly respect several of you. Let's say, we're going to put an age limit of when our children get baptized so that they are clearly, that makes perfect sense to me as a parent. You know your kids, that's great. But I don't understand when people say, child, baptism is not important, proclaiming Christ isn't important, then what else isn't important in the Bible? Then what else isn't important? Witnessing? Sharing your testimony that way? Standing up for Christ in school? When things are being said that are totally against the Bible? We're to teach our children that when, by the way, you understand what baptism is. Baptism is not a point of salvation. It comes after salvation. It is a point of declaration. I have died. I will serve Jesus Christ. It is a commanded, commanded declaration. And you say it's not important that your child dies to themselves and says, I want to serve Jesus Christ. God gave them to you to disciple them. That's your big goal. Make disciples of your children. They cannot be discipling if they're not willing to follow Christ. They can't learn that if you don't tell them. They can't learn that if you don't show them. Your big picture I need to make this child a disciple. I need to bring them to faith in Jesus Christ. I need to show them from the word of God why they need to proclaim their faith in Jesus Christ. I need to help my children to understand they need to practice the faith of Jesus Christ. Do, he says, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Oh man, there is so much that Jesus commanded. There is so, so, you know, so many different things that we're supposed to be teaching our kids. So when does this discipleship stop? When does this parenting spiritually stop? When is it that I've given them all the Bible they need? I've given them everything they need. I take them to Sunday school. That's my, own, my job? Really? Really? When the Bible says fathers, train up your children in the way that they should go. That you're supposed to be giving them the word of God. Bringing them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. It's the dad. Primarily the dad's responsibility. When's the last time you as a dad sat down and did the Bible study with your kid? When's the last time as dad you sat down and you discussed some of these things? that you went over them and you actively got involved. Well, that's my wife's job. Scripture demands the fathers take the lead in this area. So it's a matter. This is the big picture. Well, you don't understand. In my home, I'm going to teach them skill sets, how to make money. I understand you need to train kids that way. But if that's your priority, you have just taught your kid, making money is more important than serving Jesus Christ. You as a dad have to be the one that you're saying, I will be involved with discipling my child and leading in this home that they are going to serve Jesus Christ and that's going to be put faith in him, proclaim him, and then practice what he said. Now here's the, next, here's the flip side of it. The flip side, because I'm trying to make you feel guilty, let me bring you some kind of hope. You might be the parent who thinks this. This is me, okay? Not my picture, but this is... Well, my hair looks kind of like that about now but this is me. I would think this. There are, I'd sit and listen to messages where they'd preach about parenting, and I'd say, I blew this. I blew this. I'm not teaching them this. I didn't do this. I didn't do this. I didn't do this. And I would be sitting there and saying, okay, okay, I got to teach them all these things. I got to teach them all things. And here would go through my mind is teach them about worship. I can't even get them potty trained. You know, I can't get them to do that stuff, and I'm supposed to teach them big stuff like worship. Are you kidding? Teach them about being charitable to other people and to the poor? I can't get them to stop fighting between brother and sister. Now, your kids weren't like this. Your kids didn't have these issues. You never felt that you were overwhelmed by what you're supposed to teach your kids. By what God says you're supposed to do. I did. I felt absolutely overwhelmed about so much. That's why this passage continues. That's why what he does here is he not only says this is their greatest need, he not only points out your greatest job, he says this is your greatest hope and help. This is how you do it. He says all power is given unto me. That's his his sandwich. In between is the meat of of, of making disciples. Here's the other crust on the other side of the sandwich. Lo, I'm with you always. How does that apply? What is he saying? Jesus is basically saying this to all of us in all areas. I am authorizing you to do this job. What I'm telling you to do, to go out and to combat the lies of the world, I'm authorizing you to go out and combat. To go out and tell people that they are sinners, I'm authorizing you to do that. To go and tell people they need to follow Jesus Christ, I am authorizing you. All power is given unto me. And I'm telling you, this is what I want you to do. I'm giving you the authority to go out and do this. As well, I will give you the assistance. Lo, I will be with you as you do this. As you go out and you tell people. As you go, here, here, let's, let's just take the example sitting with us this morning. Go to Portugal. I, all power is given to me. I authorize you as Americans to go to Portugal and to invade their culture and their society and say to them, you are sinners, you need Christ. It's not culturally correct for an American to come over there and tell somebody else they're wrong. I'm authorizing it. And when you go and you go into the Azores and you're going to be there by yourself and it's going to be really strange, I'm going to be with you. All the time, all the places, every situation, I'm with you always to the ends of the, of the world to the end of the and so he's making it very clear. Can, can we bring it back to what it means for you as a parent? To me, this is so encouraging, so refreshing to look at it from this perspective. What you do as a parent in training your child, to say to your child, what you do as an oh, offended God, Others are going to respond to you and say you're too negative. Don't tell kids these things. Don't talk about these items. You know, kids shouldn't think they're sinners. You know, we shouldn't indoctrinate kids. We hear this all the time. You shouldn't be indoctrinating and preaching hard because you should just give every different option out there and let them decide. Okay? No, he has authorized us. To go out and to speak this way, it is totally appropriate to go to people and talk with people with grace and with kindness and say, based on the authority of Jesus Christ who has given us permission to do this, we need to tell you, if you don't get saved, you're going to hell. He has said that's an appropriate message. (laughs) It's not a nice message. And does our culture want to hear it? Do your classmates want to hear it? It is appropriate for you with grace and love, compassion to speak what Jesus has said. The way Jesus has said it. It is appropriate for us to focus and say our children, listen, I know I sound like a ranting raving lunatic this morning. I understand. I'm probably my toughest standing straight because you know several, a couple of you have been doing motioning to me so is this better? I know it sounds harsh, but our children, the children are born with the sin nature. They are sinners. Who gives us the authority to say that? Jesus Christ. It, I look at this and say, it's not enough for my kids to have gotten saved. That was good and I was excited for it. It isn't enough to get them baptized. I was excited and had the opportunity to baptize a couple of them. It was a thrill to do that. And it was, but that wasn't enough. It's not enough to do that. They need more training. They need to go beyond that. So if you come, you come on Sunday mornings and you say, hey, good, I, I, my kids get saved. That's good. That's the first step. You say, well, my kids, maybe they'll get baptized. That's good. That's the second step. But they need more. They need training. It's your job to spiritually train your kids thoroughly to train them in all areas of all commandments of Jesus Christ. In order for you to do that, you need to know it. In order for you to do that, you need help. That's why he sends them out as a group. This is a group thing. And I know and I understand some of you are reacting already and saying you're talking like Hillary, You know that we need a community to raise a child. To a degree, we do. We need the church. We need the community. I cannot cannot train my kids totally on my own. God didn't intend that. He meant for a body of Christ to help me. Now it's not their burden, it's primarily mine, but they're to assist. We need those ministries because I can't be creative like some of you in explaining these things. I look at this and say you know what? Jesus is saying making disciples is hard work. There is opposition. It's right there in the text. It's going to take a lot of time of making disciples that we have to keep on doing these things. So it's going, to, it's going to take time to keep on bringing them to faith. It's going to take time to keep on bringing them to a point where they're not scared to proclaim their faith. It's going to take time to, to get them to, put their, to practice their faith. That's why it's a process. That's why as a parent you don't get frustrated within the first couple years or three years or four years or five years or six years and say it's not working. It's a process. You say, but, but you, know, you don't understand. They, they it's a process. It's going, God gave you, I'm going to sound like those old people that I hated sounding this way. The time will fly by so Fast it'll be gone before you know it and you will say, where did those years of parenting go? It went by so fast. Don't get frustrated by saying it's taking so long. Okay, enjoy the taking long time. Enjoy the days you have. But remember, this is a process. God didn't say it's going to be immediate with your kid. He didn't say it's going to be which one of us in this room? We got saved and the day after we got saved we proclaimed and we dedicated our life and we've never struggled since. There's not a single one of us that's honest that we can say that. Our spiritual growth is a process. Your training is a process. Don't get frustrated. Now reevaluate it but keep at it. Keep at it. Keep at it. And you say I've tried it for a week. Keep at it for another week. And you say, but you don't understand. All I want is one day. Just one day where they don't drive me nuts. Take the big picture. And by the way, if you get one day, do a hallelujah, okay? Take the big picture. It's a process. And God intended it to be a process. What God has called you to do as parents is something he knows you can do. He didn't call you and put you in this situation. There isn't these accidental births, or pregnancies. God isn't that whimsical as a sovereign God that he doesn't know what's happening. Our God says, okay, I called you to parenthood. I believe you can do the job. He probably trusts you more than you trust yourself. He's put life into your hands that is for all eternity. And he says, train them. They belong to me. Train them. I'm giving them on loan to you, train them. I'm authorizing you to train them. I want you to do it. You are the one I've chosen. You are specially equipped by personality, skill set to work with this one, two, three, 10, 20. Here you go. Once again, we're learning this principle. Whatever God is saying is this. We can't do it without Him. All power is given unto me, He says. I will assist you. But you need me. You need me to go out, to go missions. You need me to do your job at work. You need him. He is the vine. We are the branches. Without me, you can do. And if we think different, we're believing we are autonomous and self-sufficient. Here's another thought for you. I'm asked to be faithful in my job the results are left up to him. We go out and we give out the gospel. Let, let's take this missionary passage. Go out and give out the gospels. Make sure, disciples, you've got to make sure that that person gets saved, that person gets saved. You've got to make sure you force them, whatever it takes. Do it by the sword or whatever. No. You faithfully give out the word. You give it out, and some of you will plant, some of you will water, but remember... God gives the increase. Okay, here's the bottom line. I can't change my kids spiritually. There's no way I could do it. There's no way you can do it. The only way they come by faith to Jesus Christ is the working of the Spirit. Now, I have to put myself in a spot that I help, that I I do my part, but it's got to be a work of God. I take you back where I was last week. Praying as a parent is really, 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 really a, a, a part of your job is praying and fasting that they come to faith, that they proclaim that faith, that they practice that faith. And you keep on, you keep on, you keep on. Can you give you something else here? Food for thought as we go on. Before I can train others to be a disciple, I better know what I'm talking about. If I want my kids to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, then pray tell I better be a disciple of Jesus Christ. I've got to be practicing, I've got to be knowing what I'm talking about, I've got to give them that, uh, that pattern of how to be a disciple. Another thought, if when I fall down in this task, and I did and you did and you will, I will never leave thee, he says, I am with you always. He doesn't desert his disciples who blow it from time to time in their discipleship. Have you ever made a mistake giving out the gospel and witnessing? (laughs) Okay, I blew it. But isn't it amazing how God can take sometimes our foolishness and He can make something good out of it? It's the grace of God that says, hey listen, if if we've made a mistake, He doesn't forsake us, He doesn't neglect us. And for those of you who are in the throes of your parenting years, you've made mistakes. Jesus is not neglecting or rejecting you because you have not done everything perfect. Lo, I am with you always. Which, let's take a step further. You don't know what to do? You don't know where to turn? He does. All power, all authority is given unto me. He knows exactly what to do with that youngster that you don't have a clue where to go next. He knows exactly what is the best to get to the heart of the child if you focus on ministering to the heart of the child and not your own aggravations. He will give you the wisdom. As well, you, when you get out of bed and you say, oh, here we go again, okay, put the armor on, we're ready to meet the kids. I don't think Ephesians 6 was all about parenting, okay? but it sure feels that way at times. And you say, okay, I feel like I'm doing... Listen, don't, don't feel overwhelmed. You know what parenting involves? This is where I'm headed towards. Parenting involves trusting God. Are you a parent who trusts God? That you're saying, I will do my my part, but I need to trust you, Father. I need to trust you to work in my kids' hearts. I need you to work with that seed that I've planted. I need you to help me because my inadequacies, my inabilities, I need your help. And you know those inadequacies and those, those moments when you knock your head against the wall, literally, because you're not sure what to do, or you've blown it? It's a good thing at times that God allows these burdens so that we can look and say, I need you more. Otherwise, we would become self-sufficient. Look at the difficulties and the challenges as something good. Remember, repetition is a part of the game. It is a part of this whole process to repeat, to repeat. Hey, here's where we started two weeks, three weeks ago, wherever it was. We gave you foundational principle number one. It went this way. Foundational principle number one said, without God, you're going to fail. He said, except the Lord build a house, they that labor, labor in. Okay. Principle number two, we talked about this last week. It went this way. Our kids are not ours alone. They actually begun, belong to God. And if you weren't here last week, of all messages that I preached on the home, this was the most critical. This is the most basic and essential message you should pick up and you should listen to. Not because I preached it, but because the content of it. That comes down to that idea that God owns our kids, they're on loan from him. Here is principle number three. Principle number three is parenting is more about addressing what kids are than what kids do. Think that through. It is more about addressing what they are than what they do. Do you have to address what they do? Yes, but you've got to be focusing on the big picture, what they are, what they are, and what they need to become. It is going to the heart, speaking to the heart reaching their heart, speaking and, we, and trying to weep and pray for their heart. That's your biggest job. As grandparenting, your job is to try to come and assist the parents to reach the heart, to reach the heart, to reach in and do that big job. It means you've got to train your kids about God. they got to know about God. they got to hear about Him. It means you must trust in God to help you and to use what you lay out before your kids, it means that what you need to do is realize it's going to work. It will work if you do. It will work. In 2 Timothy, we read about a young man whose mother and grandmother taught him the word of God Years later it bore fruit in his life and Paul writes and he says I am persuaded that their faith is now in you and he writes later that from a child you knew the holy scriptures to make you wise unto salvation. Do you remember who we're talking about? Paul is writing to his friend Uh, it's right there on the wall, Timothy. It works. Hey, um, let me close with this and I'm not trying to be Martin Luther King or anything like that. I had a dream this week. I had a weird dream. It was one of those dreams that you wake up and it just hangs with you. Some of you, you know, nudge the person next to you, they might be having one of those. I had this dream that I moved into eternity. And my eternity was walking into a house that I was familiar with. And I remember in the dream walking in looking for one person. That one person was my grandpa Rauch. His name was Hans Rauch. My grandpa died when I was in high school years, but he was the most impacting singular personality in my life. He was just a wise man. He was a huckster in many things and had a lot of bad virtues, but I really respected and learned a lot. He would tell me time and time and time again, think for yourself. Think for yourself, especially when it came to school and religion. Think for yourself. And that laid a foundation for when we heard the gospel. We heard the gospel in churches and the first person I wanted to see get saved was Grandpa Rauch. I invited him to church services. He came to us from several revival meetings and I remember sitting about that fourth row back in a church and we were there in First Baptist in Little Falls and they gave an invitation. Grandpa and I were right about in the middle of the row and Grandpa's hanging on to the pew and man, he's squeezing that pew. And I said, Grandpa, do you think you need to get saved? He just shook his head. I said, do you want to go and talk with somebody? He told our other relatives what the Burgrafts have, what Larry and Dolores, my mom and dad, what they have is real. I don't know if you ever prayed. I know that he died when he was on his farm, went back to the house from the barn. He sat down on the stoop of the front door, sat down to rest, and he had a major heart attack and they found him like that, still sitting just like this. He had had heart issues, and they had happened even after he heard the gospel. And I know there's a couple times I talked with him even after that. would ask questions, and he would say, he would just nod. You know, are you ready? But he'd never say anymore. I have, I have my dream. I'm walking through this house, and in my dream I have my grandkids with me. I'm not going to make this through. And I have my grandkids, and I'm looking for one person. I'm looking for Grandpa Rauch. And in my dream I'm sensing that we're into eternity and I find my grandpa. I haven't seen him since I've been in high school. We hugged and in this dream we're just sharing and, and talking. And then I did something in this dream that was, I said I want to introduce you to some people that are very important to me. And I said tell them your name. My name is Preston James Burgraff. I'm your great great grandson. And I woke up. I hope that's real. Yeah, I don't believe in premonitions. If I die this week, some of you will say that was a premonition. Yeah. I, to the depths of my toes, I hope I have that privilege. I pray to God I have that privilege to see my grandfather and introduce him to my grandkids. It'll never happen if my kids don't realize their biggest task is reaching the heart of their kids. Your biggest job is to reach the hearts. Deal with what they are, not with what they do.